Kia ora koutou katoa, everyone, and welcome to a very special edition of The Hoon. I'm Bernard Hickey, and I'm with co-host uh, Peter Bale, who's in Auckland. I'm actually in Queenstown, for fun, um, here on holiday with Lynn. And uh, this is our first anniversary Hoon, and it's opened up to all of our subscribers. And uh, Peter, wonderful to see you. Thank you so much for um, making oh, this. So good to see you too, Bernard. It's even mm. very good to see Robert. Yeah, the prof, no, it's, the prof, the prof who is the a prof Patman. Yeah, no. yeah, no, who's a regular feature on the Hoon, and has opened our eyes and shown us uh, yeah, all of these shown things. Shown us that there is intelligence south of. Scott I normally Strait. close them, of course. <laughs> yeah, and, and shown us just how much is happening around the world that actually, of course, is directly relevant and um, intensely interesting. And this week it has been another big week in the world of geopolitics because we've seen from uh, Vladimir Putin in uh, a speech to his own people, the partial mobilization of um, the nation, 300,000 uh, reservists called up to fight in Ukraine. And he seemed to suggest, um, not bluffing, he said, um, even using more extreme weapons, um, the nuclear weapons. Robert, what did you make of uh, the actions this week from Vladimir Putin? Um, yeah, it, the announcement about partial mobilization, Mr. Putin's been dodging that for some time. And he said quite categorically, there'll never be, in March of this year, he said there'll never be conscription. So I think what we can take from this, first of all, the need for partial mobilization. And by the way, if you look through the decree, it, this 300,000 is the widely quoted figure consisting of a reservist and people with some military training, but it can be expanded to beyond a million. Ah. Um, but I think this is recognition that the so-called special military operation, otherwise known as an invasion, is not going well. And this is an acknowledgement. This is an attempt um, to replenish the depleting lines of defense in the areas which Russia currently controls. Russia, as we've discussed before, has had tr uh, horrific casualties. And these were the best that the Russians could offer. So they're expecting somehow that reservists with very little training are going to be able to fill the gap, which actually couldn't be filled by the largely professional Russian army that went in. That, of course, so that the mobilization aspect was captured our attention. I, I think it's an omission by Putin that his operations operation is in trouble and he's he's seeking to fortify it um but the other thing was the the threat about nuclear weapons this is not the first time mr putin no. has made this threat on the very first day of the operation he warned western powers against what he called a interfering which is decoding if you decode that it means giving assistance to the victim of aggression which is ukraine hmm. and he warned countries against that well he hasn't followed up yeah, although Robert, one of the one of the points of this, isn't it, is that is that by accelerating the annexation and the referendums that will allow him to annex these uh, the Donetsk and Luhansk, he's effectively trying to turn them into Russian territory, and therefore oh, yeah. increase the ante of any of any uh, counterattack or invasion into those into those areas, and then he, and, you know it just it it makes it even more tense this whole question of uh, how the Ukrainians deploy those those uh, NATO weapons as well. 
Yes, it, it raises issues, but ultimately, um, Mr. Putin's speech, his, his mobilization speech, yes, we've got the sham referendums coming up, uh, and they're started actually in four areas. And as you say, quite rightly, Peter, it's an attempt to legal it, to provide legitimacy mm. for a fig leaf of legitimacy for the annexation. But, but also, annexation. also to increase the risk, though, Robert, right? I mean, it's, it, oh, yeah, it's yeah. legitimacy, it, but it's it, fake legitimacy. It is. But it's supposed to say that he can, by this sleight of hand, mm. by this maneuver, he can then claim that Ukraine is now attacking the territorial integrity. Uh, of Russia assisted by his Western allies. So, but that's full of risk for him. Mm. Um, uh, but the crucial thing to note here is that, you know, the bottom line is what Putin is saying to the rest of the world is, and to his own people, is that Russia must win. Otherwise, there will be nuclear war. And um, that's the false choice. Which is a very, which is a remarkably kind of Slavic death cult idea, isn't it? You know, it's yeah, either, well, with, I, it's I think either I, with me all the way or or nuclear obliteration. And I was really yeah. struck by one thing I just saw. I think you probably know and, and love as much as I do, Timothy Snyder, the Yale yeah. historian. Um, and he was pointing out that it appears as though most of this, so far, most of this um, uh, uh, signing up of people is coming in Dagestan yeah. and all sorts of extraordinary remote, difficult places. Which, yeah, you know, which, which, and Siberia, yeah, yeah, it's not going to be happening, you know, in downtown Moscow just yet. And there was a lovely thing that I, I don't know if anybody saw it on Twitter, but it's a, it's a, it's a masterpiece if you get a chance. The Navalny team, excuse mm. me, the Navalny team, um, rang up masquerading as uh, masquerading <laughs> as members of a recruitment office. They Hang rang up, up uh, Nikolai Peskov, the son, Dmitry Peskov. Oh, Nik Nikolai, I'm sorry, I apologise. Nikolai, but this is going to be explosive yeah. because yeah. this will confirm. Um, he said he wasn't going to report for duty <laughs> for the don't special you know, operation, don't you know who and I he am. said the issue would be resolved at another at a, a higher level, which would confirm that the elite will not be sending their children, their mm. offspring, to fight in Ukraine. So. I think that's explosive, and I, I think Putin's on the. You know, I think he's. A, to quote John Sweeney, I think he's a dead man walking now. I think he's in deep trouble. And um, he, 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 you know, basically, I think he got very tough messages from the Chinese and the Indians in the last week. Yeah, to pull his um, head in. Yeah, they basically told him to cut his losses. So it's going to be a very difficult winter for the, on the, I mean, on both sides, but on the Russian side, you're going to have, uh, you know, these, these conscripts being dribbled in, all these reservists being dribbled in. The um, Ukrainians apparently have got a boon of new Russian tanks. Thanks very much. With an, you know, yes. they'll be painting over the zones as quickly as they can. Yeah, I mean it's going to be the, the from a strategic point of view, the Ukrainians must take as much territory as they possibly can right now, mustn't they? Yes, they must, and they've got momentum. And the other thing is the unintended consequence of Mr. Putin's speech. Far from intimidating the West, it seems to be actually having the re the reverse reaction, as many people have noted. Our Prime Minister, in particular. Uh, reacted very strongly to Mr. Putin's speech. And I think many other Western leaders have. They can see through what he's trying to do uh, and they're not going to have a bar of it. If anything, I think Mr. Speech, Mr. Putin's announcement of partial mobilisation will actually increase Western support for Ukraine. After all, it comes on the back of a successful counteroffensive. Okay, so that, that sounds good, but let me put two things to you. Hung uh, Orban today said it was time for Europe to end its sanctions against Russia. 
and you've got a, a super right-wing government coming in and coming in in Italy. You know, I mean, it, 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 there's, there's, there's some risks there to this Western solidarity oh, yeah. as well. Well, with a grouping of 27 states, you're always going to have, I mean, Orban is totally dependent on Putin. So if he's going to take the Putin line, he's received money from Putin. His regime is based on Putin. And it, it's the populist model that Mr. Putin's invested so much in. And, and it's good to see that some of Mr. Putin's investments have worked out. I mean, the Johnson investment clearly didn't work out because Johnson did not prove to be good value for money. Having having invested <laughs> Steady on. a million Steady plus on, in the Tory party, <laughs> it hasn't worked out for them. That's yeah, the kind yeah. of outlandish defamation that we specialise in, not, not oh, highly no. skilled academics. No, but... No, no, uh, you're, I, you're, I, you're when right. I say investment, I, let's be... Let's be it was, oligarchs um, associated with Putin made political donations, yes. just to clarify that. I, it's a bit naughty, yeah. Yeah, yeah um, uh, just on the, on the announcement uh, from Putin, which seemed to trigger some... Uh, small but quite um, active protests, uh, street protests mm. around uh, Russia. And we heard these reports of all the young men diving onto the website to buy tickets yep. out of yeah, Russia. Well, there's the tra price. traffic jams on the Finnish border, traffic yeah. jams near Vladivostok. Interestingly, so even 24 hours before the announcement, because the announcement was delayed for 24 hours, Mr Putin's mm. much vaunted speech was delayed for 24 hours in circumstances which I can't quite understand. But people were already booking their planes, Bernard, in anticipation. Um, those are the ones, of course, who can afford to get out. If you mm. see the inflated prices of uh, air transportation at the moment out of, out of, out of Russia. Um, yeah, I mean, this is a serious situation. And uh, I do get the feeling that there is a beginning of a turning of the tide in terms of Putin's um, ability to intimidate domestically. The fact mm. that people are coming out and protesting in this way, it's slow and it's small, but it's beginning. And as we've seen in other countries who've got involved in unpopular wars, it can snowball rapidly. Mm. And people realize, I know Mr. Putin claims, of course, they've only lost 5,000, but most Russians know Many more soldiers than 5,000, many more Russian soldiers than 5,000 have lost their lives. And so many young men know um, if they are called up, they've got about a one in three chance of not coming back. Mm. So it, mm. it's pretty so. I wonder, I wonder if one of the pivotal people, Robert, right now might be Ramzan Kadyrov from, from Chechnya, yeah. you know, who was very critical last week uh, of, the, of the Russian withdrawal or the Russian flight. Um, but also, if it's places like Dagestan, if these peripheral areas of the of the former Soviet Union of Russia are being um, particularly targeted for these for mm. these conscripts, you know, then Chechen Chechnya is not going to be entirely happy with that. I would have thought. No, no, and um, Kadros' position is interesting because he believes that Putin hasn't been hardline enough, mm. um, and of course, the ultra nationalists. Um, probably uh, believe that Mr. Putin should go because he hasn't really done what he set out to do, which was to decapitate the Zelensky so-called neo-Nazi regime mm. and also subdue the whole country, which, of course, Russia could never do with an economy smaller than Italy's. It could never take over a country of 44 million and efficiently run it. So, mm. um, Well, it finds a great difficulty running a country of, with a collapsing population of 120 million. Yeah. yeah, it's interesting that the ultra-nationalists 
uh, uh, seem to be as frustrated with Putin as you know people who probably are more liberal, liberally orientated. And most of those, of course, are locked up. But um, it, it it seems to me a very dangerous moment for Putin. Um, I think quite a few Russians were not. I wouldn't say they were happy about it, but they accepted the status quo while it didn't dangerously impinge on their lives. Mm. Now it's beginning to look as if Mr. Putin's delusion about being able to invade a neighboring country and create a greater Russia at its expense is beginning to really seriously threaten their own lives. And that's, I think, you know, authoritarian regimes, it's very difficult to read the tea leaves because it's very difficult to see the ebb and flow in the political process. But I think that there's some constituencies that we previously discussed, which have been unhappy with Putin's mm. leadership for some time. Um, certain senior people in the military and certainly in the FSB. So it'll be interesting to see what happens in the next few weeks. And I wonder too, if these conflicts that seem to be breaking out on the southern borders of Russia uh, with the former Soviet states are yeah. happening because his power and mystique is starting to drain away. And uh, when that happens, there's a vacuum of power. Yeah. And also when he tied, when he attended the Shanghai Cooperation Council meeting, not only did he get public dressing down from well Modi about not addressing down but he embarrassed Putin and also I think the Chinese did it more privately um it was interesting that some of the other leaders such as the leader of Kazakhstan kept Putin waiting <laughs> yeah. as if you know <laughs> they recognized his diminished position and this won't be lost on people within Putin's entourage and um if they see that the boss is no longer respected, they may think they need a new boss. Mm. These are people, of course, who, 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 who believe that Russia is historically entitled to a sphere of influence. Yeah, and who also want to keep 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 hold of what they've obtained over the last twenty two years. Well, yeah, but Robert. Also, I, 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 Jacinda Ardern made I thought a very good point this morning about why not to get rid of the Russian ambassador here, <laughs> about you know diplomatic keeping diplomatic doors open. Um, so I have a, if, if you, I know you've got a hotline straight to Jacinda and to Nanaya Mahuta, and I, I'd like to suggest that we use her presence at the United Nations General Assembly to get uh, Guterres off his bottom uh, and combine with Jacinda and Ratchet uh, Tayyip Erdogan and start a conversation towards a diplomatic solution on this while Putin is weak. I mean, it was very interesting to me that, that yeah, but that, was another as long as this diplomatic away, solution but... doesn't in any shape or form reward Putin's aggression. Putin mm. can't be allowed to have an inch of Ukraine. No, if... he gets an off-ramp to get off without being... Um, he can go back to his billion-dollar palace and... Ukrainians will never accept a deal that's made over their heads. Mm. And it's unrealistic to believe the sacrifices that country has made. They've been let down by the UN Security Council spectacularly. Mm. And they're not going to have accept a deal which in any way gives Putin territory. And in fact, they want to go back to the 2014, um, you know, status quo, territorial status quo. Mm. What I would say is I think I might disagree, Peter. I think um, it's not ideal for New Zealand to expel the Russian ambassador on their own. It would be better if small and middle countries throughout the world did it in unison I think the message, though, it, uh, the reason I think there is some value in it, I don't agree with the Prime Minister when she said it was the least 
meaningful option. It's important to go beyond the Putin regime and communicate with Russian people. If, for example, I don't know, 30 Russian diplomats got expelled simultaneously from a number of countries around the world for their illegal invasion of Ukraine and the nuclear war threats that have emanated, it might register with a number of people who are already uncomfortable with the mm. situation. I, I think that may be a way of giving regime change a nudge in Russia without being seen to directly interfere. Robert, thank you very much for coming in. We know you've got another thing to go to. Wonderful yeah. to see you. Um, thank, thank you. Thank you for, for helping us get through. Sorry, this I can't stay. And, remember, and remember who turned you into the Michael Baker of, of, uh, <laughs> of international affairs. Yeah, Peter and uh, Bernard, I'll never forget. You know, it's been a lot of fun <laughs> and uh, all power to your elbow. Thank you. Thank you. Okay, now it's time to go from geopolitics to the global economy and uh, welcome in uh, to the panel uh, ANZE Chief Economist Sharon Zollner, who's been on the show before. It's Hi, wonderful, to, wonderful to see you there, uh, Sharon, um, in particular because the last uh, two or three weeks, um, yourself uh, and ANZ's economics team have been leading the pack a bit uh, with forecasts on the official cash rate, and that uh, maybe um, has, has uh, flown over to the positioning of the bank itself by uh, moving its um, fixed mortgage rates ahead of time. Sharon, um, great, to, great to see you, and particularly after such a big week uh, on global markets and in the global economy, what, what is the, the thing that stood out for you this week as the thing that really matters for people trying to understand what's going on with the global economy and how it affects us? Or you might have to unmute yourself there, Sharon, or... Let me see if I can solve this issue here. Uh, mute. to unmute. So I can't hear you there, which surprises me a bit. Um, there we go. How are we? Oh, now? fantastic. Great to see you. Excellent. So, um, Sorry, I bumped yeah. a button. I didn't even know it was there. Oh, right. no. That's, uh, I, I suspect there's a few people in the financial markets who've done that occasionally, and it's cost them gazillions. So that was a cheap, <laughs> a cheap fat finger. So that's <laughs> yeah. good. Um, right. uh, Sharon, so um, what is the big thing this week from your point of view in terms of anyone who's trying to understand what's happening in the global economy and how it affects us here? Well, I think basically, while there was a lot happening, uh, I think basically Powell's press conference after the Fed hiked another 75 basis points summed it up pretty well. Equities didn't like it, and that was pretty understandable because it wasn't a very nice message. It was basically, yes, we can see the housing market is struggling. We can see um, things are going quite tough, but nonetheless, we're going to keep hiking. We're going to have, we have to get interest rates into positive territory um, in terms of real interest rates being above inflation, and we're going to have to hold them there for quite a long time. And he said, I wish there was a way to get inflation down without causing real pain but there isn't. So you can't get much clearer than that. Yeah, it, it, he seems to be well ahead of the market on this. It seems that the whole market's going, yeah, well, he says that, but he won't follow through or he won't have to follow through and we can just sit tight and, and we'll be fine. Mm. Is there a well, what we saw in the, the last 
three meetings with equities actually managed to rally on the day. It's like, oh, well, phew, that's out of the way. It can't get any worse. <laughs> sure enough. But this time it ran out of puff. I mean, equities fell initially when, when, the, um, when they hiked and then they bounced up. And then in the press conference, there was just no silver lining. So they went back down again. Is, is that expectation expectation of recession, Sharon, that's causing that in the equities? Because it's, you know, they've still been, still been working on higher earnings, particularly from the fangs and the real economy. Is, does this suggest yeah. that we are anticipating a Euro's decline now? Recession? Yes. Um, it, well, essentially, there's no good news at the moment because, um, well, bad news is obviously bad news in terms of um, the economy slowing, but good news is bad news now as well because it means the Fed's going to hike even more. So it's just the symmetrical situation to what we had during the pandemic, which was that bad news was good news because it meant central banks would keep pumping out the, the cash and the liquidity. And, and so everything had a silver lining then. Now it, it's the, the opposite basically and markets have struggled to get their heads around the fact that central banks aren't their friends anymore and and aren't going to backstop growth i think you've just written bernard's next carca for him with the bad news is good news and the good news is bad news scenario that's right <laughs> oh, yeah cool. and no, it, it looks to me in the uk you mean you also had a, a, a big interest rate rise in the uk but you've also got this interesting problem of uh, what looks like a very strong loosening um on the fiscal side uh, and, and, and a tightening on the monetary side, which calls into all sorts of question the potential conflict between the Bank of England and the government. Yeah, well, we've got a mini version of that here. I mean, fiscal policy is highly expansionary. Monetary policy is doing its best to rapidly become uh, contractionary. But over there, that's on steroids. Uh, and that's the sort of policy muddle you can get when you've got this kind of horrible shock which presents high inflation pressures, but uh, is negative for growth, policymakers are in a spin um, because it's really not clear what the best thing to do is. There are no quick and, and easy fixes. Um, I think the trust has to be a little bit careful that the market might start to question the sustainability, fiscal sustainability, the sum of stuff she wants to do. Um, but even that aside, it is a push me pull you. The Bank of England's trying to actually put more pressure on households. Households are reeling from this double digit increase in their energy bills already. So that's very political for sure. Let me ask how you're seeing this from, from, from New Zealand. I'm sorry, I'm stepping into Bernard's territory here, but you know, Grant Robertson was 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 at a business meeting this morning trying to say that things were actually you know reasonably okay, whereas there seems to be a lot more potential gloom or gloom coming from business people, particularly if you read um, Fran O'Sullivan's thing in the Herald today with a bunch of grumpy, um, overprivileged chief executives, as some might see it. <laughs> well, actually, I think um, things are relatively okay. Things are looking quite robust. The Reserve Bank's been hiking for a year. And yet it looks like business confidence, consumer confidence, the PMI, the PSI, all these things look like they troughed a few months ago and are now on the way up. So yay, but we're back to the good news is bad news thing from where the Reserve Bank sits. They actually need things to not go so well. They need people to be a little bit scared and stop spending. And at the moment, it's not obvious that we're on that path, that's, which is why we think the OCR needs to go to... 475, not four. Um, basically, yeah. the economy is not rolling over, which is great, but the Reserve Bank needs it to sort of gently roll a little bit. Um, and we think inflation is going to certainly come down as oil prices and everything else comes down, but not far or fast enough. That, that was a fascinating um, point you made in your note today. Uh, I'll put a link on, on the chat there for people to look at your, your weekly note, Sharon, in which you, you say that it's not rolling over quite as uh, easily as the Reserve Bank might have hoped. And it may even have to go maybe even a little bit higher than 4.75%. Is there a chance that, you know, we could have an OCR with a five in front of it? Absolutely. I mean, we we basically, of course, there's massive uncertainty and we're not saying 4.75 is a lock, you know, you base all your decisions on that. 
we've just basically tried to choose the number that we think balances the upside risk and the downside risk. So obviously the downside risks are pretty clear. The house, house prices are down nearly double digit. Um, and of course, more people are still rolling over onto fixed mortgage rates. So it could be we just have to wait to see the impact of that. But on the other hand, there's this question of how fast and how far inflation will come down. And if it doesn't, then that means that real interest rates are still actually very low or possibly even negative, depending on how you define them. Um, and, and you could actually see green shoots in the housing market, which would definitely get the Reserve Bank to whip out the roundup, I would say. They will have no tolerance for that. Yeah, it's interesting to see some of the uh, green shoots appearing in the um, commentary from mortgage brokers and from real estate agents saying there is a few more people turning up at open homes. There. It is spring though. There's always a big seasonal lift mm. and that's going to be the challenge to separate out the, the seasonal lift, which of course will be shouted from the rooftops by those with vested interests um, versus what's the real momentum seasonally adjusted kind of pulse. It's going to be pretty volatile, I think. Now, the other big thing that's happening at the moment is the New Zealand dollar uh, fell to a two and a half year low uh, last night, in part because we have, there's plenty of tensions in the global economy, but we have this really weird, amazing thing where just about every central bank in the world is hiking interest rates, turning off their quantitative easing. And then it's Japan, which has been, you know, full on um, quantitative easing for decades, buying every bond that moves. Uh, and they came out yesterday and said, <laughs> Yeah. yeah, yeah, we're going to keep yeah. going. Yeah, yeah, you can't stop us now. And mm -hmm. for not just, you know, a few months, years, you know, two or three years they talked about. And uh, lo and behold, um, as soon as that came out, everyone went, whoa, so I'm going to get 4% plus interest rates in the United States. And in Japan, it's going to be zero until the end of time. Yeah, I better buy some US dollars. <laughs> and then the Bank of Japan did something that we haven't seen since 1998, which is intervene to stop the yen from falling. Um, what, what did you make of that, that move and, and this uh, potential for reverse currency wars? Yeah, well, technically they were instructed to do that by the Ministry of Finance, uh, but whatever. It's clearly a push me, pull you kind of situation. I mean, they are spitting in the wind. For currency intervention to work, you have to really have both countries on both ends of, of, of that currency pair be on board with it and intervening. You need to have a market that's, sort of in two minds about where things might go. And at the moment, the Bank of Japan is such an outlier, still printing money, still capping yields at 10-year yields at 0.25, whereas the, the US rate is going to the moon. I mean, they are spitting in the wind. I don't know quite what they hope to achieve. But I have heard someone say that, well, basically, they're going to have to abandon that yield curve, uh, that yield control very quickly. If, they, if the market gets any whiff that they're going to do that, it'll end up costing them a lot more money, but it's clearly unsustainable. So maybe you could be a little bit of a, a conspiracy theorist here and say they are trying to appear completely committed to this policy so that when they do the bait and switch, it, it's less expensive for mm. them. But they're certainly on a... a maybe we need another... Nowhere at the moment. Maybe we need another plaza record. <laughs> maybe. Yeah. But the interesting yeah. thing about Japan is that while their inflation, their core inflation is only 2.1 or something, it's up from minus one at the start of this year. And if you plotted it against everyone else's inflation, but on a different axis, you can see that the dynamics are identical. And it's just worth noting that a lot of the world's hyperinflation has actually started with deflation. So I think Japan's going to be fascinating to watch over the next 12 months. Mind you, if you're also a conspiracy theorist, you could say, um, if you wanted to get rid of Japanese government debt uh, through inflation, that's one way to do it, to repress 
the interest rates and then just let the inflation do the work. But the other thing I'm interested here is that New Zealand dollar down to 1.58 and a half cents or so. Um, so um, what, how much of an inflationary impulse is that putting into our economy as our currency falls? Is that going to just, um, you know, uh, give the Reserve Bank a bit of a shock? Yeah, it's, it's unhelpful from where the Reserve Bank sits. Adrian Orr seems to have taken a vow of silence about the exchange rate and he will never express an opinion on it because I think that he's seen his predecessors crash and burn by suggesting it should be higher and it just always does the opposite on the day. Um, so I can understand that, but it is definitely uh, an offset for financial conditions. If you put it into a financial conditions in index, it's probably, well, it's definitely a massive offset on the positive side. It boosts the, the price of imports and it's boosting exporter incomes so but it's not something we should be taking personally because the US dollar is on an absolute tear both because the US Federal Reserve is raising rates ferociously they've passed us now in terms of their policy rate um, but but also they are still the world's safe haven for lack of mm. alternatives. What, what, is, what does it mean for, for the what just from the domestic economy point of view seeing for example that Fonterra final payout yesterday um, you know, it is going to be really good news for, for farm exports, isn't it? For, you know, there'll be a lot of people in Waikato buying uh, buying new ewes. Yes, but the exchange rate give us and it take it away. You know, their fuel fertilizer prices, for example, are, are through the roof. Um, but yeah, they're a net net winner, and there are other people who are net losers, which are the consumers who consume a lot of imported goods, for example. So it does definitely. Um, yeah, move things around the economy. It's very unusual for the exchange rate to be this low when dairy prices are this high. Um, and, and normally that is the one job you want the exchange rate to do is to move with the dairy prices and, and share the joy and the pain of those commodity cycles around. But we're just not seeing it. Um, and, and given the US dollar is just bulldozing everyone in its path, um, it, we're not expecting that to change anytime soon. Sharon Zola. Sharon, thank you so much for coming on to our first anniversary, Hoon. Um, we really appreciate it. Um, you're one, one of the stars of the guest stars that we have, the many guest stars we have on. So we really appreciate it. And uh, we'll be looking forward to your next um, updates on uh, uh, property markets, um, the official cash rate and various other things, because I think you might be leading the market uh, here. And um, it's always good to see who's doing that. So really appreciate it. Pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. Okay, it's now time to uh, invite onto um, the Jeez, panel. This is a bumper uh, edition, Bernard. Oh, it's it's. I mean, we're celebrating. This is the this is the um, the who. Is is, um, did you did you ship us all a bottle of Kaka champagne? Uh, yeah, maybe a bottle of gin. I mean, I need to get on with it's that. It's a very yeah, good no, idea, it's... actually. Kaka gin is a bloody good idea. Hey, Josie. Let me unmute myself. Hello. Oh, cool. Wonderful to see you. Thank you very much for coming on. Oh, great pleasure. Congratulations. One year. Yeah, no, we're we're alive and um, kicking and the Stoats didn't get us. So that's um, that's really good. And um, we're really lucky that we're able to do someone cut like a this. hole in the fence at Zalander and we got out. <laughs> <laughs> oh, we can fly too. We can fly. That's true. Across. That's true. Yes. Yeah. I was actually um, struck the other day, Bernard. I was up at Snell's Beach and there's a new colony of um, Kaka come across from Kawao Island and populated around the area around Tofranui. So we're, you know, we're, we're spreading, our little emissaries are spreading out. Oh, yes, we're going to take over. Eventually we get rid of all those stoats and mm. all of those. Um... You're the most sustainable podcast around. Congratulations. That's right. Thank you very much. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Fantastic to see you, Josie. I understand you've been uh, overseas and um, thinking about the world of uh, 
you know, the big changes happening in the world, um, development and the likes. What did you make of, you know, what's happened out of uh, Europe and Russia and UK in the last week? It seems like everything's speeding up and it all, it's all getting really wild. Yeah, it was. I was at a conference um, in Toronto. It was there was meant to be. It was hosted by Justin Trudeau, Ursula von der Leyen, um, Tony Blair. It was meant to be a big kind of conference about, um, you know, protecting democracy basically and how democracy kind of pushes back against the rise of populism. But of course, the Queen died, and uh, they all had to go to the funeral. So we were left in the room with. Uh, basically the people who write everything they say anyway. So um, it, was, it was just as good as having the politicians there, if not better. But the, the really interesting thing for me was this new polling, which is not public. I mean, I've written about it today in a column, but um, about public attitudes at the moment to everything that's happening, um, mostly about the economy. Um, and interesting, just listening to your discussion there with Sharon. So you know, overwhelmingly, and this is 11 countries, this is the US, UK, European countries, and so on, overwhelmingly, people are very worried about cost of living, inflation is like this massive political wrecking ball, you know, it's just, it's, it's changing everything. So there's a, it looks like the public and voters are shifting left on the economy big time. So the, the thing that will really please you, Bernard, is um, data showing that there is, for the first time ever in this YouGov polling, this is YouGov, so these are, mm. these are you know, very legitimate polls, um, that the public across all these 11 countries support a tax switch. They mm. want to see tax taken off income and put on to wealth. So, you know, bearing in mind in these 11 countries... socialists... Yeah, but that's right. Yeah. You can shut up, Peter. Um, but, <laughs> in you know, in most of these countries, they have a capital gains tax. We don't even have a proper capital gains tax. So that's interesting. So you would assume those are countries that our polling usually follows. So you'd assume that's the same in New Zealand. In other words, and it's not driven by envy. It's driven by a sense of fairness that there's this massive problem inflation, cost of living, and everybody has to do their fair share. And, you know, people on income shouldn't have to carry the burden of the tax burden. So that's really interesting. Yeah, yeah. and it'll be interesting to see whether that flows through here because um, we've got this weird situation where, you know, the bulk of the population think one thing, um, but the politics don't seem to find a way to get through and turn it into policy. And in the UK, of course, um, yeah. we have a new prime minister who's going and doing the exact opposite of what yeah. this poll is suggesting. Yeah, well Another, um, a, a, the YouGov friend of mine who does all this polling, um, he's a great guy, and he said, my message to politicians is take the thing that voters say is the thing and do that. Yeah. In other words, respond to not your ideology or your idea of what voters need, but what are they actually saying they want? So the problem for Liz Truss, you know, she's come in uh, without the support of the public. So I think the latest polling I saw was about 50% of the population in the UK are disappointed that she's become the PM. She doesn't even really have the support of her um, caucus colleagues. I mean, most of them, I think over half of them didn't vote for her. Um, and she's not particularly popular with the public. So, you know, I, I used this quote the other day to paraphrase um, Oscar Wilde. She may not have enemies, but she's intensely disliked by her friends. <laughs> so how, how she's going to pull all this together. At, at the same time, she's kind of lurched, I suppose, to a sort of Reaganomics approach yeah. Economy, um, which is, you know, tax cuts worth about, I think, 34 billion US dollars. Um, 
you know, a massive stimulus in a time where you don't need a stimulus um, in the hope that this is meant to grow productivity, that if you cut taxes, you'll grow productivity. Well, we know from Reaganomics that that didn't happen, um, that, you know, ultimately there was a recession and ultimately inflation went up. So, you know, she's kind of on the wrong side of that. And if we look at that, those polls about what the public want, they want governments to you know, intervene to help them with the cost of living and they and they want to see this tax switch and they don't think tax cuts, um, you know, are the way to go. So, yeah. I, how, do you, how do you think that'll translate into New Zealand politics? Because the obvious party to actually push the boat on this is the Labour Party in, in combination with the Greens, yet they are um, shackled to a prime minister who says she will never, ever, ever in her political lifetime do a capital gains tax or a wealth tax. And it looks like they're going into the next election, which would be the normal time to you know, make proposals about these sorts of things, essentially with their hands tied behind their back and um, uh, a, a big old uh, sock in their mouths. How does Labour deal with this? Look, this is a government, as we know, that is incredibly risk averse like they can't even expel the Russian ambassador <laughs> so if they can't do that they're not going to introduce capital gains tax or or look at it because what this polling of of publics of voters across 11 countries tells you is that they're they're looking for politicians with with um who are on a mission who are on a moral mission right that's why populism is so important to them they're also popular uh, it's why you get a trump and an orban and hungary and sweden democrats just recently in 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 sweden who won over uh, the working class voters from the social democrats which is extraordinary in sweden because sweden is you know they are the social democratic capital of the world so that the appeal of these populists is that they're on a moral mission to break the system and rebuild it in favor of you that's their message you know the system is broken the economy's broken we'll fix it for you so that's what that's what the likes of Trump say. Then you get a Labour government like the one we have in New Zealand, which is saying, oh, we're just going to tread very carefully. It's that sort of professional politician that has sandpapered the moral drivers in politics to the extent where you go, you know, I mean, if you can't expel the Russian ambassador, when <laughs> you know, I'm one of the ones that have been sanctioned, you know, you sanctioned 31 New Zealand citizens, um, you're, you're guilty of war crimes, you're, you're threatening to drop a nuclear weapon, and you're going, yeah, but, you know, we've, would you like a cup of tea? I mean, what the hell? So yeah, I, I, I don't see anything brave or, or electorally um, uh, and ironically, I think it would be popular, but I don't see anything, you know. Jesse, what, what about just what about the rise of the right though in Sweden? You know, it was largely fueled by by a very negative view of immigration, which they folded into a view of law and order. Uh, and then you've got the rise of the right in Italy, and now you've got Orban again. We talked a little. I mean, I'm bringing you in back into the Robert Patman conversation that we started with, but you know, you've got some fracturing in the European solidarity about Ukraine and 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 the somewhat rightward movement. The Sweden Democrats are really interesting because they, are, you know, were originally a kind of neo-fascist uh, party 20 years ago. They, they say they've rejected that, but, you know, barely. Um, uh, but the, the interesting thing is that, yeah, you're right, Peter, their appeal, their appeal was to, um, you know, the working class in Sweden who feel that, um, the social democrats are the elite 
and that they focused way too much on, um, you know, climate change and and identity politics and being and you're right, being very pro immigration. Um, the 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 issue they had, which is not dissimilar to the one we, we're having in New Zealand, is about gangs and crimes and shootings, right? So they were increasing. And the Social Democrats uh, came a little bit late to that issue and tried to say, oh, yes, well, we're tough on crime, tough on the causes of crime, you know, and and, and said, yeah, we, we've, we think this is an issue too. And the voters didn't really trust them. So I, I still think that, you know, it's not about pandering to an anti-immigration um, uh, uh sort of view it's about saying again what is the thing that voters are telling you is yeah, the thing but Josie, that? won't that won't, won't that here be co-governance three waters the rise of maoridom i mean i just if you look at fran frono sullivan's rather bizarre interview interviews with 100 chief executives today the number of them who bring up a preoccupation with um maori issues and preoccupation with co-governance as being uh, a negative is quite extraordinary and i think there is a you know there there does appear to be a strong political thread in New Zealand that is responding to what I think of as the grumpy, grumpy Pākehā. Um, isn't that likely to actually have some resonance here? No, because I think a bigger issue, and I'm not saying it won't have, have some, um, uh, you know, resonance, but the bigger issue in New Zealand is cost of living and inflation. That's, that's the big issue for people. And that's why in this polling that I saw from YouGov, they're, they're calling inflation the political wrecking ball, you know. So if you're not, you know, yes, you may have noise around these issues, but I think the bigger issue for the bulk of, of the population is what are you going to do for me right now about cost of living? And also, how are you going to fix what we think is a broken system? We think the system isn't working. So, so yes, you know, I think... I think the co-governance and three waters stuff, and we've talked about this before, but, you know, good luck finding three people in the country who actually understand what three waters is. You know, they, they, don't, they, they don't have to understand it. They just have to be angry about it. And I, yeah, I have a feeling yeah. that this anger, anger and the very astute um, manipulation of, of David Seymour and to some extent Luxon, but or Luxon tends to leave it to some of his backbenchers. But, you know, it's, it's been very astutely fueled and just nudged along. Whether you whether one understands it or not, one gets grumpy. Yeah. Not um, this one, of course. Yeah, that's right. And so it's. I think it'll definitely be a strand and an issue that kind of bubbles away. But I still think, you know, if you looked at if, if you if you look at what is most concerning for people at the moment, it still is the cost of living stuff, right? So what you'd, you know, so, someone said to me that the way that you beat back against that kind of slightly populist views around immigration or crime or whatever is to get there before them, and and that's why I think the problem we've got with this government is that they're not particularly brave and they tend to sort of sit back and react and go oh you know let's do a focus group and polling on what our attitude to this should be whereas in fact what they should be doing is saying um, oh and, and to be fair they're anti-immigration too right so um they're not sure what their position is on this rather than kind of coming out and going actually here's our agenda for how we live in partnership with Māori and 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 this is what we think is is really positive they they don't do that because they're not going to risk it right so they they leave the field open to, yeah yeah but, know, which is incredibly dangerous i mean you see that with uh, you know i'm i'm living I in at the moment and i i i look at what's happening with afisu collins and um ifiso collins and uh, wayne brown i i would i reckon that that might be a very interesting test for the for where the david seymour stuff is landing I don't know about that because I think it's more uh, an Efeso is is a friend of mine and I think he's a fantastic politician and I I really hope he wins 
I think the decision he's made to run on a very left green ticket is a problem. And, and, and I've, I've raised that with him in the past, that I think he should have run far more mainstream um, campaign about, uh, um, you know, uh, um, transport around and also around cost of living and around, um, you know, how you're going to help right across the... I mean, Wayne, Wayne Brown is coming across as a kind of technocrat, which I suspect mm. a lot of people in Auckland would, would quite like. I mean, even if they don't have, it's not like quite as bad as Wellington, of course. But, well, it, it's the first time you've seen, I think, in Auckland, it's the first time you've seen the right um, coalesce around one candidate. Mm. Usually they, they sort of, they're hopeless at running this. They don't think the local elections are important. Another thing that came out in this sort of polling around 11 countries is that voters support more government spending, but in their local area. And that's a really important um, distinction. So when you talk about the co-governance, Peter, one way in which the Labour government and the left could campaign on this is about a devolution argument and saying actually what we support um, is, is devolution of services and delivery of services and resourcing to local communities, whether that's iwi, whether that's local council and so on. So I, th I think it's really interesting that, that voters are saying we, we want more government spending, we think government needs to do, to do more about cost of living um, and we want those services and we, we want to be able to live in the place that we were born in and get a decent job and have a place to live and have good services. That's that's quite a change. So rather than going, we'll increase tax credits, you know, we'll give you more tax credits or we'll increase welfare or we'll support you across the nation. It's a much better message politically to say, we'll do something in your community. Yeah, but we'll also create Maori wards, which will give you a sense of dissatisfaction with democracy. Yeah, but again, in your that's own... technocratic. Don't worry about that. It's a, it's a much bigger, broader, more passionate message about partnership, right, at the local level. So the problem for Labour, I think, is that they get stuck in debates about co-governance and debates about Māori wards and so on. They've missed the moral message and the passionate message about we'll help you in your local community and we're all in this wonderful country together. And, that, and that's the key thing, that localism. Yeah. How do you get more local with your funding and with your spending when you've got a system in New Zealand which is the most centralised in terms of central government funding and spending versus local government funding and spending in the developed world. So our councils have very little power to raise revenue from GST or income tax. In fact, none. All they can do is rates. Many of them have moved away from land rates to capital value rates. And so they find themselves marginalised to, you know, uh, picking up the rubbish running a library and um, running the pipes badly, as it turns out in a lot of cases. And the government yeah. doesn't trust the local governments or maybe the bureaucracies don't trust the local government to actually spend the money. So one of the most interesting debates in this localism, I agree, I think a lot of people would like more money spent locally, but Wellington and not just the government, you know, if you scratch a few of the nets as well, they're not necessarily loving the fact that, you know, you wouldn't want to give money to a, a Labour mayor or, or a Labour council in some place, Christchurch or wherever, or Wellington. And you've got the standoff between central and local about funding. And actually, when you look at all of the debates around three waters and also densification, when you get it, get down to it, it's always, always about this disconnect between central and local government on funding infrastructure and funding services in which the central government wants to hold on to all the GST and the income tax and also 
be in control of our population growth through the migration settings, which means that any surge in population growth goes straight to the government's bottom line and better GST and income tax revenues. And the councils have to pay for half of the infrastructure spending, but don't get any of the benefits from that revenue growth. So what you get is this horrible, sort of passive aggressive, quiet quitting. Oh, where the council's passive go, aggressive in New Zealand. That would never happen. Oh no, no, we're really good at it. But also, we wouldn't nitwits in Parliament, let alone we've and had several nitwits had to withdraw from the auction, Auckland mayoral elections already. It's not that easy to get good people in these in these positions. But, well, it's, it's a chicken and egg thing. That it's a chicken and egg thing, exactly. And 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 you know, we 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 kind of agonise over why don't people turn out to vote in local elections? And oh, let's have a citizens' assembly about democracy. You know, well, how about we just make local government more relevant to people? You know, people aren't voting because they can see that you know what's the point of everyone's going to you know no one's really debating whether or not you collect the rubbish or not. You know, so so they're not voting because they're not they're not motivated to vote because they know. That, you know, there's not a lot that local government is doing that that is relevant to them um, in terms of the things that they're worried about. So I totally agree with you, Bernard. And I think what's really interesting about the stuff that you've done on Three Waters is that you've you've highlighted the fact that the problem with this is that it's just more centralization when actually we can look at this polling internationally and say people want more devolving of power and decision making locally but you've also highlighted you know the anti-democratic nature of three waters and some of the kind of co-governance models where you know it should be Māori should be able to vote for who represents them as Māori in the on these organisations, and that's missing. And we had the auditor, you know, audit, um, uh, audit, oh, what was the pay? The, the, we have, anyway, we've had we've had you know various John Ryan, John yeah. Ryan, that's right, come yeah. out and go. You know, look, there's a democratic deficit here. This is not an accountable mechanism back to the people where the water pipes are, you know, servicing. So, I think those are the issues, Peter. When we talk about, you know, what what could what could a government or what could Labour do or what could, you know, what could be the issues? How do you push back on some of this stuff? And it's coming back to the basic principles of why are we doing it anyway? And how do we, um, you know, how do we increase that democratic? It's so interesting <laughs> that you should say that, Josie, because I've, I've been involved with um, a thing that Peter Gluckman is running about a, a response to the TVNZ, RNZ merger. Mm -hmm. And it is extraordinary, the level of centralisation that's in there and the risks of really strong ministerial control being imposed on this amazing new um, media entity in a way that, you know, TVNZ yes. and RNZ are not currently, you know, there's, there's a there's a bit of a democratic de deficit at the heart of a lot of this government's current proposals, it seems to me. Yeah, and, and, it, and it seems to me that the way in which you can try and have these debates in a far more um, uh, positive way, whether it's co-governance or three waters or... Um, you know, uh, local control is 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 to have that debate and kind of go well, because what 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 it seems that voters are asking for is is you know politicians that are prepared to kind of blow the system up and rebuild it in a way that they feel is more responsive. So the politicians that can respond to that, whether it's co-governance or whether it's three waters or whether it's cost of living or or, or whatever, will. Will actually will win. You know that they'll yeah. they'll be the ones that are talking the language that the public wants them to talk. But the irony at the moment is the people who seem to be capturing the mood of that um, disconnected, grumpy people, often in the middle, 
are the ones who do bait and switches. They say, vote me and I'll fix it. And then they do. And then they change the rules to make themselves better off, which is what happened in the United States and what's happening right now in the UK. And um, you could argue it's, it might happen again next year here. Um, uh, Josie, thank you so much for coming on. It's been wonderful to have you on and, and um, going into those um, deeper things. That's a, I've put the link up to your column in the uh, the chat in the um, on the Zoom message there, and um, I'd really recommend uh, people read it. It's a it's a cracker, and now I'm going to after this I'm going to dive into the YouGov uh, stuff and see. Yeah, I can yeah, find I think that looks really interesting. Thanks very much, Josie. Oh, yeah. great pleasure, and um, yeah, love doing it, and congratulations again on a on a whole year. Yeah, Just no, long you're... time for a podcast to survive a whole year. Yeah. Right. Especially when it's as random and badly produced as this one. Oh, yeah. actually, this one's, we're getting better. We're getting we, better. Well, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Very good. Thank you. Thanks, um, what I'm going to do, um, uh, Josie, is just pop you into the attendees while we just have the final chat about, um, uh, final chat about uh, what, what's happening on the, on the kaka. Thank you very much for being on. Lovely. Bye. Bye. Peter, sorry, I didn't quite catch that. Are you muted? Yeah, I am. Jesus Christ, oh. I think I would have got that night out. What's yeah. happening on the Kaka, Bernard? Ah, yes, thank you for that um, very well-positioned uh, free kick question. Um, I uh, this, this, is the, this is a year ago this week, we turned the paywall on on the Kaka. And as you can see in you the... You say we, you mean you. Actually, no, Lynn. Grieveson and yep. I pu yep. push, pulled it on the on the kaka. For those who who don't uh, know, you might have seen Lynn at the very start of the podcast. Lynn Grieveson is the editor and the uh, designer, and also uh, takes all of the photos that we put up. Um, she also become the producer for the podcast. We need to get that's a actually, good idea. Yeah, that would be. I might be able I to will, get a word in edgewise. I, <laughs> I will put that onto the list. So Lynn Grieveson and I a year ago turned it on. And it really was a um, a bit of a test, uh, floating something, seeing if it would work. And we weren't necessarily confident that it would um, pr provide a, a full income to do the work that I do. But it turns out it has been. And in the stats that you can see in the chart that I've sent out with the invite to this um, this webinar, uh, you can see that we've risen to a total of 9,700 almost full total subscribers. And the people on the paid tier, uh, we're up around 2,800. Now, a, a chunk of those are people who are on the um, free list, if you like, and that's the students and the teachers. Remember how we said we were going to open it up for free to all of the schools and universities, which we've done. And that is much more on both counts than uh, we expected. Now, that is, um, for me, a real um, uh, surprise and a pleasure. and. Uh, Peter, um, th this uh, weekly podcast has been a big part of that um, feeling. Well, Bernard, I think that's a really, you know, I, I, I uh, what I'd also like to see, and I know, you know, you know, I, I'm, because I'm not with you, I can't just put my arms around you, but, um, <laughs> you know, it is extraordinary the way you've got tremendous support and loyalty from your audience. They love what you're doing. They love the clarity of what you're doing. It's, it's really impressive. And I, I think it's a, you know, I, I do a lot of work in the international media sphere including sharing best practice with people and this the rise of an individual publisher such as yourself uh, and your ability to both communicate effectively without ranting you know there's very little you know you you, you very rarely let rip with a rantogram and certainly not with a rantogram that isn't well sourced 
mm. which is which you can't say that actually about many of the major media organizations where it's filled with half-assed with will this do ed um commentary <laughs> whereas whereas if if you have a rant you've done some research and probably some reporting to support it so thank you, you no I, pre I appreciate it and actually um a big reason why we've been able to um do this and project put out so much and focus on the reporting and the writing and the analysis is um, because of tools like uh, Zoom, but also Substack. Um, I don't think people quite understand how um, easy and simple and effective Substack has become as a tool to uh, for writers to um, create um, analysis, writing, podcasts, video, put it out in a really simple way that people can understand create a paywall which works and which is able to be controlled in a way that you know makes it very much a, a choice by the writer and um and create a community and well, i think also Bernard, may i just say one I'd add one thing to that which is as the cost of living starts to bite as people start to look at their subscriptions think about the true value that you're gaining from the kaka you know, I think we have to add value to it. You have to add value to it. Um, you know, as, you, as I've said to you before, you're not scalable. But, yeah. uh, you know, when you're making a critical decision about what's free on the internet or what you actually want to pay for, um, it seems to me that you've done a fabulous job so far of, um, of showing value in it. But I think it will be really interesting for this terrific um, readership to think about the choices that they may have to make as they're perhaps shedding some of their other subscriptions. Because there's a yeah. lot of absolute bollocks out there, I'm afraid, yeah. <laughs> Masquer masquerading behind paywalls. Yeah, and and you are right. Um, there is going to be a moment of truth when the um, subscription fatigue sets in, and suddenly everyone realizes, ah, oh, no, I've got nine substacks, and um, yeah, or Bernard fatigue. Time. They might. We, we've got to, what we've got to avoid is Bernard fatigue. But <laughs> Anne French is is going to be there um, shouting from the rooftop, saying, "More Bernard, more Bernard." Yeah, um, and you are right. I'm not scalable, so I have to be. Um, quite diligent and uh, careful about um, uh, what I put on so that's not too much and that's something I'll be thinking about quite a bit over the next wee while as we have this it is a bit of a moment of truth the first year because remember in that first month of the kaka a lot of people signed up to annual subscriptions which mm. they had a choice about whether or not to renew in a year's time and that surely lifetime time, subscriptions Bernard but based around your lifetime so you if you peg it through exhaustion they, they get their money back yeah no we'll have to set up a um a preset refund on that one on yeah. event of birth. no no i thought i thought it all all subscription revenue goes to goes to lynn in the event of your death through oh, overwork that that is that is true yeah. yes um so uh so it is a big moment um this this first year moment and so far uh, we've had a lot of people who have renewed their subscriptions particularly those people who who maybe got the discounted version to start with and are now paying close to the full version or the full version. And um, I really appreciate it. Uh, it's allowed me to focus on this and do a lot more and to have fun while I'm doing it and to do it with, um, with people who I enjoy talking with and being with. Sometimes that's not always the case on the likes of Twitter or Facebook or Instagram or whatever. That's one of the beauties of Substack is that we can all... Um, have these debates, have these discussions, and it feels like a a collegial, you know, occasionally. Oh, I don't know. Somebody bit my bloody head off the other day, well, a couple of weeks ago. <laughs> yeah. Uh, All right. So it's it's pretty good. 
So I, I just wanted to say thank you so much. Thank you to Peter uh, for co-hosting. This is the flagship of the of the Kaka, I think, and um, and also to thank you to all of those people who've tuned in today and have subscribed either as a free or a paying subscriber. It's uh, it's been a hell of a year, and we're looking forward to the year ahead. Kaki te ano, everyone. Bye bye. Bye bye.